Welcome to The Victory Kitchen, the podcast all about American food rationing during World War II. I'm your host, Sarah Creviston Lee, author, historian, and vintage foodie. I'll be exploring the logistics of food rationing, featuring wartime cookbooks and recipes, and highlighting real home front experiences. We're going to be learning exactly what our grandmothers had to do to get their food to fight for victory. Hello, welcome to another episode of The Victory Kitchen. Thank you so much for joining me today. It has been ages since the last episode, and it feels so good to finally be back again behind the microphone. A lot of things have happened since uh, the last episode that I recorded, one of which is I started a Patreon account. If you're interested in supporting me in that way, you can check out my Patreon. It's patreon.com slash Victory Kitchen Podcast. There are different fun perks for patrons, but what uh, all my patrons receive every month are three wartime recipes from my uh, personal cookbook collection. And those are lots of fun. I try to pick some interesting ones and I don't share them anywhere else. So just for my patrons. And I'm so grateful for them. So you can check that out if you're interested. So for today's episode, it is episode 23, and we are going to be talking about a seldom discussed aspect of the agricultural picture in relation to wartime rationing. And that is the work of conscientious objectors, POWs, and Japanese imprisonment camp internees just as in the case of Women's Land Army and the Braceros, in order to get their crops cared for and harvested, farmers relied heavily on the labor from these other groups of people that we'll be discussing. It might seem that conscientious objectors, or or as they're referred to also as COs, POWs, and the Japanese and Japanese-American internees, they don't seem like they're really related, but there is much overlap in how their labor was used on the home front, feelings surrounding them, prejudices they faced, etc. So this is going to be a two-part discussion. So for part one, this particular episode, we will be focusing on the conscientious objectors. This actually has quite a lot of personal meaning to me because my grandfather was a conscientious objector during World War II. And so it meant a lot to me to be able to put this particular episode together. And we will not just be talking about, you know, the things that they did for the food effort, but just because this topic is hardly ever talked about anywhere, I wanted to talk a little bit about kind of the broader picture of who were the conscientious objectors what happened to them during the war, what things that did they do during the war, and how were they treated. And I just, I felt this was important because they're usually not part of the discussion at all. And I've thought many times what would happen if I went to a World War II event and had a display about conscientious objectors and what the reaction would be. Um... And it, you know, I, I'm really, 
I'm not sure. It, it still kind of makes me a little afraid <laughs> because people still have pretty strong feelings about this topic, even to this day. And and so I, I just feel like they they don't talk about it much still. I was able to find only a handful, uh, not even a handful, <laughs> like three, three memoirs that have been published from conscientious objectors themselves and compare that to all of the military memoirs that are out there. Their story is not being told and it is such an important part of our country's history and part of the World War II story. And it's unfair that if for all of us, if it's left out. Now, doing research on this topic, I've actually done quite a bit of research on this topic just because of my fiction book that I'm writing. <laughs> um, one of my characters is a conscientious objector, and it is very difficult to do research on this. And I've even gone down to the National Archives, which is where much of this is stored, this research. And even pinning down how many conscientious objectors were there during World War II, it's still very difficult to say. But on the Friends Journal website, in an article about COs during World War II, they state that, quote, since there was no national register of conscientious objectors, the total number is unknown. But 37,000 were classified by Selective Service as COs. 43,000 served as non-combatants. Within the larger group of COs, 12,000 men served in civilian public service, and 6,000 went to jail, close quote. <laughs> so that kind of gives you a little bit of an idea. There were two types of service that conscientious objectors served in. There was military non-combatant. That was things like clerical jobs, medics, or chaplains, and then there was non-military. Probably the most famous example of a military non-combatant conscientious objector is Desmond T. Doss, who won the Congressional Medal of Honor. There is a movie made about the, his story called Hacksaw Ridge, which you may have heard about, and there are books about his life and um, his story that are pretty easy to find. So if you want to look more into, into that, you can. There have been three historic peace churches that have been at the heart of the conscientious objector movement throughout the history of our country. The Friends, or how they're better known as the Quakers, the Mennonites, and the Brethren, or the Amish. To become a conscientious objector, a man usually had to be a member of one of these three churches or prove with their local draft board via their church pastor that they really held those religious beliefs. Personal feelings were not enough to become a CEO, though there were some political or ideological objectors. Now, my my grandfather belonged to the Church of God, which wasn't one of the three peace churches, but their teachings were along the same lines. And in one of the memoirs that I found, at the beginning, there is an actual chart of all the different churches broken down by how many objectors belonging to each of them. And I, I can have that on my blog because it's a really interesting breakdown. 
of, you know, how many, the distribution of religious wise. And so I found that to be really interesting. Now, the history of conscientious objectors in our country is actually quite a long one. We've had conscientious objectors from the time of the Revolutionary War, but it's been a rocky history. World War One was probably the worst time for conscientious objectors in our history, and they were treated horribly. But World War II saw a huge improvement, and one man that really helped things along was Colonel Lewis F. Kosh. And I won't talk too much about him here, but there was an article in the newspaper I found that really went into a lot of detail about him. And I'll just read briefly what they say here. It says, the man largely responsible for turning what was a scandal of World War I into something that actually helped the taxpayer in World War II with as little bitterness as possible for all concerned is Colonel Lewis F. Kosh. And he was very sympathetic to helping the conscientious objector being treated fairly. And so in World War II, the Selective Service Act was passed in 1940. This enabled more options for draftees classified by the local draft boards as conscientious objectors, or 4E. These were those unwilling to accept non-combat military service. The National Service Board for Religious Objectors led a variety of national service programs with input from Congress and the White House, along with the American Friends Service Committee playing a major role. So these two organizations um, were kind of the ones that ran the programs at camps for conscientious objectors. And the military were the ones that drafted the men into service and classified them and then kind of shunted them into these programs. It's kind of, so they were kind of working together and it's a very complicated system to read about. And so trying to pin down details can be a little confusing. Um, reading these um, memoirs was helpful um, but even then, sometimes the details are contradictory. So I'm doing my best with what I could find. <laughs> um, so men usually signed up at, with their CO status, you know, um, in advance. So when they heard about, you know, you need to um, turn in your draft cards ahead of time, you know, a lot of them you know, designated that they were conscientious objectors before. So when the their draft notice came for service, um, they would then go through all the hurdles required to prove the sincerity of their beliefs. This entailed several different forms and an in-depth interview with the local draft board. Inductees also had to go through a, a military physical exam just as if they were joining up. In Roy Hoop's book, Americans Remember the Home Front, he includes the story of an artist, Simon Greco, who became a CEO for ideological convictions. And Simon talked about his experience going for the medical exam, which was not pleasant at all. He got a call from the local draft board 
to have his physical exam at an army induction center. And he talks about how that was really rough because they were spotlighted. They had to go in with a band on their arm that was marked CO. And it was a yellow band because, of course, (laughs) and a common thing name that they were called were yellow bellies. So he was just thinking, oh, wow, how appropriate (laughs) that it's yellow. Um, And then he also talks about how one of the examining soldiers was an army doctor that got pretty violent and was cussing them out. He started to get really worried because there they are just standing in it there in a towel and that's it. And he wasn't quite sure what was going to happen to him. And finally, he just says to the guy, now, I've had about enough of this. The first guy that lays a finger on me, I don't mean a punch or a kick. I mean, just touches me. You're going to have so many lawyers down here tomorrow. You'll never know what hit you because I am not in the army. I haven't been drafted and you guys have no authority over me. Now, either this whole thing quiets down or I'm going to just walk out of here, even if I have to walk out naked. <laughs> and um, you got to admire him sticking up for himself in that situation. Um, and this, unfortunately, was not uncommon, this kind of treatment, being hazed for their beliefs. And now in another account, you know, that I read, I mean, he wasn't bothered very much at all. And he doesn't mention anything about ha- anything happening during his um, exam, medical exam. So, you know, it just it just depended on where they lived and their circumstances. Now, Conscientious objectors did many different types of wartime work from forestry to farming to working in the medical field. Some worked in mental health institutions, making a huge difference there, and in some cases exposing how poor the conditions were at these institutions. The majority of conscientious objectors, though, lived in mostly former CCC camps, or which the CCC stands for Civilian Conservation Corps. And these were usually far away from the public eye, which was frankly, probably for their safety. The plight of the CO was not a popular topic during the war. Um, Once they were assigned to a camp, they were required to supply their own clothing and other items they'd need. Things that men in the military received as general issue. They served their time in work camps doing odd jobs, menial labor like digging ditches, fencing, Endless tasks that didn't seem to have a point. Things that ended up essentially being morale killers. There were more meaningful jobs like fire jumping and forestry management. The camps weren't prisons with guards, but they couldn't go AWOL. They weren't stuck at a particular camp, but could apply to move to another camp or another type of job. Many times going into the towns where they'd be working, they were met with welcoming committees shouting yellow bellies and were pelted with produce and rocks. Edward M. Arnett in his book, A Different Kind of War Story, recounts his experience. He says, Our brief passage through the very small town of Big Flats was accompanied by a few tomatoes and stones thrown by a group of boys along our path and jeers of yellow bellies. It was clear that walking through town to or from a bus while on leave or furlough could be at least unpleasant and sometimes offer a good chance to put loving your enemies to the test. (laughs) 
I guess that is one way to look at it. <laughs> a small percentage of conscientious objectors were able to go to work on farms, though most were funneled to dairy farms because of the huge labor shortage in that sector, especially in the springtime. One rule was that they couldn't work on a relative's farm, so they were sent out of their home state to work on the farm. And this was a huge frustration to them, especially if they had come from their own farms because they knew how much their own family farms needed their help. About 6,200 conscientious objectors worked at either seasonal or full-time agricultural jobs during the war. In his book, Edward Arnett talks about how he worked for a short time on a farm and uh, with a few other conscientious objectors. And uh, he talks about how um, the fact that the farmers were getting the benefits of quote-unquote slave labor and how that bothered a few of them. Um, and if it did, then they didn't sign up for that uh, farm work because it was on a volunteer basis. And he doesn't remember if they were paid or not and uh, or if the farmers were paying them or and if they were who they were paying um, because um, he was sure that they weren't paying them like the conscientious objectors. So he was just excited to go and work and see more of the area where um, they'd been moved to. And he talks about how he enjoyed working on the farm and um, they worked in apple and peach trees and fields of corn and different grains. But they primarily worked in getting in the corn and chopping it up to make silage mix. And he talks about how dangerous it was. And I haven't really found a lot about the specific farm work that conscientious objectors participated in, but I imagine it was pretty much the same as what other farm laborers were doing at that time, especially emergency farm laborers, you know, picking um, fruit trees and, you know, working in the fields, grain crops and things like that. Now, Working with conscientious objectors wasn't for everyone because of the highly charged political bias against them. Local labor boards interviewed farmers to see if they'd be a good fit for having conscientious objectors on their farm. I found an article in the Knoxville New Sentinel out of Tennessee from February 9th, 1942. And it says, when an objector was turned over to the board, it would canvass the neighborhood to see where he could best be used. He would be assigned to a farm which needed a skilled hand and whose owner promised to view sympathetically the anti-war views of his new worker. A tough problem in human relations is presented in these cases. A farmer whose son had been drafted might be inclined to make life miserable for a conscientious objector, farmhand. In that case, the objector could go back to a camp. The objectors are not paid wages. In the camps, they are supported by the churches whose members are conscientious objectors. A farmer who could get the work of an unpaid hand would be expected to furnish room and board for him. Now, this thing about the wages may or may not have been true, um, as I found other articles stating they were paid wages. And now we come down to the tricky question, were 
conscientious objectors paid? Now, I say this is a tricky question because the research on this is very minimal and contradictory. I've read in some places that farmers did have to pay them the going rate for farm labor, but only a small percentage of that went to the conscientious objectors themselves and the rest went to the government to help run the conscientious objector programs. In other places, I've read that they got nothing and it all went to the government. I did find more evidence in newspaper articles. In a Virginia newspaper dated May 20th, 1943, it reads, While on detached duty in the service of the state, the men are paid, but they receive only a small part of the salaries they earn. It was learned yesterday they receive $2.50 per month, and the remainder of their earnings goes to the camps from which they were drawn. In a New York newspaper dated March 13, 1943, it says the objectors are permitted to earn only $2.50 per month and that farmer employees must pay the difference between that sum and prevailing wages to the government. A ruling of the Comptroller General, which made the funds payable to the Treasury, met protest. And I'm not sure exactly what protest they mean, though I had read somewhere else that some conscientious objectors protested that their wages were being sent to the government and being used for the war effort at all. So there's that. So I'm not sure if that's the protest they mean. So in these two articles, you know, they're at least are both saying $2.50 per month. Um, and they're quite a few months apart. So they're not just repeating the same information. So a little bit more likely that this is true and that the remainder of the money, so that they ha- did have to pay their prevailing wages, but that the conscientious objectors only got $2.50 a month, which it, even if we do the calculations to figure out with inflation, like what that would mean for today's wages, like that was nothing. Just even talking about, you know, some of my, the menu plans from wartime, they talk about, you can make this meal for $16 a week. Um, That's $16 just for food for a week. <laughs> They're getting $2.50 a month. Um, That could barely cover any expenses they had living in this camp, not even talking about sending money home to their families. So this was pittance, literally. Now, there was a very different picture for conscientious objectors who had dairy farm experience. Dairy farms had the most urgent needs out of all agriculture, especially in the spring of 1943, and they paid a premium for their labor. In an Illinois newspaper dated April 2nd, 1943, it says, Requests for a local contingent of conscientious objectors followed announcement last night by the Agricultural Labor Administration that it will start at once to release 500 experienced dairy farmers from 33 conscientious objectors camps to work on dairy farms in 25 counties in 11 states where labor shortages exist. Wages for the conscientious objectors will range from $55 to $65 a month, including room, board, and washing. Military rules will not be enforced. 
hmm, this sounds too good to be true. (laughs) Well, guess what? It was. (laughs) In another newspaper from Pennsylvania, dated May 25th, 1943, it says... The men were released for work on dairy farms, and farmers with the largest number of cows had first choice in picking their help. Farmers will board and house the men and pay $50 per month for their services to a central fund in Washington, D.C. Of this $50, each man will receive $15 a month from Washington, the balance of the pay being held at Washington for the duration of war plus six months. Field men from the Central Committee will make periodic checks to learn whether conditions are satisfactory to both conscientious objector and the farmer employing him. Changes and replacements can be made only through the U.S. Employment Service. Okay, so here we get some more details about how they are being paid. So they get 15 bucks a month. Washington holds on to the rest of it um, until the end of the war, plus six months. Um, and then... There's a little bit of oversight to make sure that things are satisfactory between the CEO and the farmer. Now, there was a little bit more, though, going on with the pay that I found in another article from a Pennsylvania newspaper, a different one, dated May 11th, 1943. It says, compensation of the CEOs is paid at the rate of $50 a month, but only $15 a month may be retained by the worker. The remaining 35 is turned over by the farmer employer to Washington, where it is held in escrow for the duration, minus insurance costs on each man, which must be deducted, and any charges for medical care incurred in this period. Oh, (laughs) so Washington takes its cut even more. (laughs) So, so there we go. They don't really get all that money. So yeah, um, But still, $15 versus $2.50, you know, the dairy skills was where it was at. That was the skill you needed to have, I guess, if you were a conscientious objector. Because other than that, you barely got anything. Now, what about their families back home? Even though conscientious objectors were under kind of military jurisdiction, they did not get any military benefits. CO's wives got nothing. They had to survive based on the kindness of family members and the support of their church. What this boils down to is that CO's, even the ones that weren't straight up in prison, were still basically prisoners. Uh, Their families were left penniless unless the wife was able to work herself. If she had a supportive family and church, you can imagine that this wasn't always the case, though. Making this decision was not an easy one to become a conscientious objector. In his book, Dear Dodds, Letters from a Conscientious Objector During World War II, Art Bryant highlights the financial difficulties many CEOs faced. He says, The men were under considerable strain. The families of some were no longer even friendly to them, let alone supportive. In a few instances, wives had left their husbands. With few exceptions, the CEOs had almost no money, and particularly for those with wives or with wives and children, this caused great pain and inner turmoil. We received only a token, and there was no allowance for our wives or families. The government contributed no funds, and the American Friends Service Committee had only limited resources. Some never left camp because they had no money at all. Uh, He mentions later that they did get 30 days of leave each year, so they were able to leave and go home and visit their families. 
but it makes you wonder, if they had no money, how would they get there? In his book, A Different Kind of War Story, Edward M. Arnett also talks about his payment for his COs or the lack thereof. He says, The whole deal that the peace churches had cut with selective service placed serious hardships on many CEOs and their families. It could be properly called a form of benign slavery in which the churches collaborated in helping to make conscription work in return for providing a relatively safe haven for CEOs. CEOs were paid nothing by the U.S. government compared to the $21 a month of an Army GI. Unlike the families of GIs, no allowance was made for the families of COs. Wives of COs had a tough row to hoe, especially if they had small children. If they were part of a peace-minded congregation, they could have some support, both financial and moral. But if they were in a warlike town or neighborhood, they could be very poor and lonely. He does make concessions that, of course, COs' lives could be galling, but not nearly as boring or deadly of an experience as that of a combat GI or Marine, or sailor, and no worse than going to prison. Another interesting aspect of um, conscientious objectors is that there were differences between the peace churches and their beliefs, which caused frustration for the government. An article from the Democrat and Chronicle pointed this out. It reads, Praising the Quaker farmers as creators in the art of farming, C.A. Kenworthy, manager of the Oneida Office of the United States Employment Office of the United States Employment Service, recalled that the religious objectors from the same section of the country, Pennsylvania, had helped to feed Washington's army and later Lincoln's army at Gettysburg. However, the Amish sect holds so closely to its pacifist views that it refuses to produce milk on its dairy farms for war uses. And so they did run into difficulties with some farmers that were conscientious objectors that did not want anything to do with the war whatsoever. You know, and that was just kind of the nature of, you know, working with people who had these religious views and these convictions against war in a time where the country was swept up in 100% patriotism and we're all in it for the war effort. There were a lot of negative attitudes towards COs during the war. Despite the huge advances in their rights and views being more recognized and generally respected, a lot of people felt they were cowards and unpatriotic. They not only faced personal persecution, but their families, whether they held the same views or not, were sometimes ostracized. I like how this one man stood up for them in a comment in a newspaper column. It's from an Ohio newspaper dated February 2nd, 1941. And his name was Paul B. Klinger. And he said, I am not a conscientious objector and did not register as such, but I feel strongly that those who do have religious objections to war should receive the consideration that the law provides. As a citizen, I resent the inference that springs up in a time of hysteria and propaganda that a conscientious objector is not patriotic and should not receive the consideration that the law provides. Our forefathers fled from the dictators of their day and came to this land that they might worship God according to the dictates of their conscience. That government which they founded still says today that its citizens have the same privilege. Let us keep this in mind as this subject is discussed in the future as it has been in the past. I really like how he talks about that, how he just brings up that, you know, our forefathers and how they fled from the dictators of their day and came 
so that they could have the freedom to worship God according to the dictates of their conscience and how he kind of draws that parallel to their time and these conscientious objectors and having that freedom to express their freedom of religion. So I just, I really like that he's pointing that out and reminding them um, despite the, what he calls is the hysteria and propaganda of their day. No matter how people felt about the conscientious objectors' views, the men who were listed as conscientious objectors helped their country a great deal during a time of war. One newspaper article from the Bedford Daily Times-Mail, dated July 2nd, 1946, told it from this practical perspective. The headline reads, Five Million Man Days of Work Performed During War II by Conscientious Objectors. It goes on to say, For only $1.26 a day, the American taxpayer has received more than 5,388,700 man days of work from conscientious objectors since the start of the war, according to National Selective Service. This was work on soil conservation, road building, growing food, and many other jobs, work that the taxpayer would have paid for anyway, including valuable volunteer work as guinea pigs in medical experiments. It saved the Treasury of the U.S. about $18 million. This estimate is based on Department of Labor figures as to what the same work would have cost if the government would have had to pay for it in the usual way. And it doesn't include an estimated $2 million which individual states saved by the work conscientious objectors did in hospitals and asylums. I think that's pretty incredible. I mean, these numbers are nothing to sneeze at. And I love that they're giving credit to the incredible work that these men did for their country. A man in another newspaper article goes even further. And I'm going to let him have the final say because he just really puts into words everything that I've been feeling as I've been uh, doing research on this topic for months. (laughs) So this is George E. Harms, a pastor of the First Baptist Church in Auburn, California. He wrote in to defend praise and correct some thinking about conscientious objectors and their work during the war. And this is from an article in 1946. He said, most of the men who are in the CO camps come from the so-called historic peace churches with a record which is everything but that which your recent article describes. They have fought many battles in fields of another sort than war, as the following statement from their record shows. In fairness to the loyal COs, please print it. We have fought forest fires, done parachute fire jumping, made surveys of watershed conditions, served as human guinea pigs in malaria experiments, starvation experiments, nutrition experiments, fatigue experiments, jaundice experiments, altitude experiments, worked in mental hospitals, drained swamps, dug ditches, strung telephone lines, We have received commendations from foresters, scientists, soil conservation men, doctors, and others under whom we served. These boys, while serving in this capacity, received absolutely no pay for their work and no clothes, as did the regular soldiers, and in most cases had to supply their own food. The historic peace churches, which they represent, send each boy $30 per month out of which he buys his clothes and pays his board. In the camps, this money is pooled in cooperative living. 
The unfair thing is that very little is made public about the good things the loyal CEOs do for the benefit of the country, which has given them birth and a place to practice their Christian convictions. <sighs> I just wish I could shake this man's hand. <laughs> um, just as a thank you, because sadly, it is very true that so many of these men's work has gone unthanked, unrecognized, and ignored. And yes, it's true. They did not put on a uniform. They did not pick up guns. They did not go out and fight our enemies. But there is definitely more than one way to support your country in a time of war. And these men did that work. And their work definitely deserves recognition. And I hope that this episode does at least a small part in doing just that. Today's cookbook feature is the Victory Handbook for Health and Home Defense. And this is another fabulous example of super duper patriotic cover. <laughs> it even has red and blue plastic comb binding. And it has the Morse code for V on it. It has a giant B. It's red, white, and blue. It's just everything. This was published by the American Legion Auxiliary Post Unit 15 out of Waynesboro, Pennsylvania. So for me, this is actually pretty local. Waynesboro is just like half an hour away from me. So it's really neat to have a local cookbook to read and study. Uh, this book is not just a cookbook, but it also it has like tips. It's even got uh, a famous nine-day reducing diet. Hmm, I'm not sure why it's famous, but it is. Um, <laughs> and um, even f they've got a diet for putting on weight too. And kitchen terms and then lots of recipes and then at the back there's tons of advertisements um because you know all the sponsors to get this cookbook published the foreword is everything you could want in a patriotic introduction <laughs> it says a man's home is his castle is true enough, but charged with the management of every home is a woman. It is her task to make it a real home, a home steeped in culture and refinement from which one may go forth refreshed and inspired to meet the problems of each day, a home to which one may hurry each night to meet loved ones who erase the cares of the world, a home that is the bulwark of democracy, a home made by the peoples of a victorious nation." To aid in building this all-important home during these times of strife, our organization has published the Victory Handbook dedicated exclusively to health and home defense. It deals with practical issues of civilian defense. It suggests numberless recipes which will conserve vital foods such as sugar, spices, etc., Ooh, I'm glad they say spices. <laughs> it outlines numerous delicacies that make palates tingle with anticipation. Ooh. It suggests diets for the underweight and overweight that we may build a truly invincible nation. And it teaches again the salient facts about our flag, the symbol of a free country. That's true. At the back, it has some 
facts about the flag. The home is the backbone of our nation. It is a challenge to each of us to make it flourish and take an even more important place in our lives. Victory lies before us only after a supreme struggle. The Victory Handbook can ease the sacrifice, the shortages, and make a worthy contribution to civilian morale by helping to build the home stronger, sturdier, and more solid as it marches shoulder to shoulder with the armed forces of our nation towards certain victory and the creation of a new world of democracy and freedom. Oh boy. Like I said, uh, <laughs> very, very patriotic, just brimming with it. So that is that. <laughs> now, this cookbook, I promised in this Instagram post that this cookbook had a lot of really fun recipe names. And it does have some really fun ones. Um, in the drinks, there's a military punch. I'm not quite sure why it's called military punch. Except that, I mean, it's got water, sugar, strong tea, orange juice, lemon juice, rum extract, and then a bottle of ginger ale. <laughs> Maybe the rum extract is like to hint at alcohol, but you can't drink alcohol. So <laughs> there you go. There is the most fabulously named tea zombie. I don't even know what to think about this drink. But yeah, I just love the name, T-Zombie. There's also something called the Salad Beautiful with pineapple, lettuce, French dressing, raw chopped apples, and red hot candies. Why? Why? <laughs> um, and then they have a section that specifically to help you conserve sugar. Like they have the rest, most of the recipes in one section and then they've got like even more war-friendly recipes that use corn syrup or honey. And this is where some of the really fun names also come in. There's a World War cake. So this is probably a cake from World War One. There's lightning spice cake with cinnamon honey top. That sounds good. There's a victory lemon cake that uses corn syrup. There's also um, torpedo frosting and defense apples. So <laughs> those both sound really fun. Um, just a very interesting cookbook all around. Now, as usual, I tried two recipes. The first one, I tried was a main dish. It is baked beans and hamburger. That's what it's called. Something, it sounds kind of boring, but it actually reminded me of, with a little nostalgia of my teenage years. You know how teenagers eat kind of weird things sometimes? Well, I used to eat baked beans with ground beef. That's all. It just, for some reason, it was super satisfying. I guess I just needed extra protein or something. <laughs> But it just tasted so good to me as a teenager. And I used to just love eating that. Well, when I saw this recipe, I kind of actually passed it by because I was like, oh, that sounds so boring. Nobody's going to want to read about that <laughs> or hear about it or look at it. But I just went back to it because I was like, you know what? I don't care. I'm just going to make it. <laughs> and I actually got a pretty good response on Instagram. Everyone thought it looked so good. And it was good, by the way. It was very tasty. 
And it's very simple, very easy, very cozy winter recipe. It has onions, celery, ground beef, four cups of pork and beans, um, Worcestershire sauce, salt, powdered sage, and then you can use water or canned tomato juice. I used water. You heat the oil in a skillet. You add the onions, celery, and the ground beef, and you cook it uncovered for about 10 minutes, and then you add the rest of the ingredients, and then you heat well and serve. That's it. Super easy. Um, I think the only note that I would add is that I would probably reduce the salt. It says a teaspoon, but I would take it down to maybe half a teaspoon because I just, I like the sweetness of baked beans or pork and beans, whatever. I think you can just use any old, like your favorite brand of baked beans or, you know, pork and beans. I just like that sweetness. So I found myself wanting to add honey or brown sugar to balance out the salt. I just thought it was too much salt. So, I mean, it's not that it was bad. I just wanted the sweetness of those baked beans. Either have the salt or add some brown sugar or honey. And I think it's just the ticket. It was really good. And the sage adds a really interesting herby flavor. I usually don't add sage to things. Um, And so this was nice to have um, another recipe to use sage in because it just sits around in my cupboard doing nothing. So (laughs) um, yeah, I like this one a lot. The next recipe I tried was apple muffins. And I the day before had just tried an apple muffin recipe and it was okay. Like it was pretty good. Uh, I was another different wartime one, but then I was flipping through this book and I saw this apple muffin recipe and I was so excited because this one looked way more fun and interesting because it uses cinnamon and nutmeg and um, had way more apples in it. It just looked like a better recipe. So it has, you know, flour, baking powder, salt, cinnamon, nutmeg, shortening, sugar, egg, milk, and chopped apples, like a whole cup of chopped apples. Of course, you sift the dry ingredients. Always sift the dry ingredients if it says to in the recipe, because it really does make a difference in these vintage wartime recipes. Now, it says to add the shortening, but I'm going to give you a little tip about these recipes is especially in muffin recipes if it calls for shortening you can actually swap it out with oil just whatever I usually use canola oil you can use vegetable oil because I mean in this recipe I did use the shortening that it called for but um, modern muffin recipes it always calls for oil and I feel like the end product is always the same so At least for vintage muffin recipes, you can safely swap out shortening with oil, especially if you're not a fan of shortening. So that's my tip to you. So it says to add shortening and the sugar mixed to light, stir in the egg, and then the flour mixture, and then the milk. (laughs) Oh, jeez. These steps are not the greatest. By the way, the way they wrote this muffin recipe was terrible. I discovered that the way they just, (laughs) this is the way I would do it. Just mix together the dry ingredients and then you put your milk, measure it into your measuring cup. Then you put in your oil and then you put in your egg, like crack your egg into the liquid and then you like whisk it up. Then all your liquids are together 
and then you put it into your dry ingredients and then you mix it together with a fork or whatever until it's just mixed. And there you go. Like what's with all the mixing? They're just so confusing. Here's the other thing with this recipe is that it says to spoon into the muffin pan, then sprinkle with the remaining sugar. (laughs) What? At no point does it ever say to hold back some sugar. So here you're putting in uh, a half a cup of granulated sugar, but at no point does it say, oh, by the way, leave out some sugar. (laughs) Don't put it in the muffin mix because you're going to sprinkle it on top later. What? (laughs) So, So what I would suggest is, you know, measure out your half cup of sugar and then remove two tablespoons to save for the top and you'll be fine. (laughs) So, or do what I did and like, don't see this till later and just use half a cup of sugar and then, you know, save the, just use two tablespoons for the top or even one tablespoon is enough to sprinkle on top. I don't know. You're supposed to mix the quote-unquote remaining sugar with the nutmeg and the cinnamon, and you bake it in a hot oven. So you don't even put cinnamon into... Oh, yes, you do. You split the cinnamon and the nutmeg into the mix and then onto the top. So at least you they have you do that. But they say nothing about the sugar. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I don't know. Whatever. So... I will type up this recipe the way I think it should be written on my blog so you won't be as confused as I was. (laughs) But either way, this recipe is a total winner, you guys. This, these muffins were amazing. They disappeared in less than two days, I think. Yeah, between the two apple muffin recipes I made, there's still apple muffins left of that first recipe, but these muffins are gone. Like, they just disappeared. I think my son is to blame. <laughs> yes, I'm throwing him under the bus. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. We all did our part to make these disappear. They were so good. So yes, like I said, I will have these recipes and pictures of them on my blog where you can try them yourself. Today's story highlight is actually my own story highlight. Hooray! (laughs) This is the first story highlight from my own uh, family that I've been able to tell because my dad's dad was too young to be in the war, but my mom's dad was the conscientious objector during World War II. So a little bit of background. My grandfather's name was Maurice Yerden. He was the son of Ivan and Elsie Yerden, both of whom were ordained ministers, which was pretty unique for that time period. Um, my great-grandmother, Elsie, was actually ordained as a minister before my great-grandfather. So Grandpa Maurice grew up with both parents being ministers, and I found his draft registration card and he uh, was 18 years old when he filled that draft card out. He was living in Allegan, Michigan at the time 
and they belonged to the First Church of God, the headquarters of which were in Anderson, Indiana, and they actually still are to this day. Maurice met my grandmother, Lenore Hazelrig, in high school, and they got married on the 13th of June, 1943, so right in the middle of the war. Uh, they married in Allegan, Michigan, and then less than a year later, he entered the civilian public service on February 1st, 1944. I haven't been able to find any paperwork that uh, talks about him being a conscientious objector, but uh, I'm still on the hunt. <laughs> he worked in three camps one in Michigan and two in Oregon. He worked in forestry and fire prevention jobs. And unfortunately, my grandfather never talked about his work in the civilian public service and neither did my grandmother. She didn't talk about her life during that time. They did have a farm, but we don't know if they were working a family farm or if it was a farm that he had bought when they got married, but his occupation was listed as a farmer on his draft card. We just don't really know a lot about that or how my grandmother was able to support herself. Um, I don't know if there were diaries kept during their life during that time or if even there is pictures surviving of their life of that time, but I do have one memory which I'll share at the end. But I did want to talk about at least the the one thing I can talk about is the coolest part is that I can go to the civilian public service website and I can look up my grandfather and see his service record, which is pretty cool. He was civilian public service worker number 011593. That was his number. And the first unit he worked in was 42-01. This was in Wellston, Michigan. The work that they did at this particular camp was that they fought fires. They engaged in fire prevention. Um, they did maintenance and preparation of firefighting equipment. They also devoted a huge effort to reforestation. They became trained as timber cruisers that was to plan for future timber cutting. And where necessary, some became involved in helping control the spread of tree diseases. Still others helped build and maintain public campgrounds. And it kind of makes me wonder, just all this time spent in the woods, if this, you know, contributed to my grandfather's love for going camping and spending time at parks. Um, and that in turn led to my mom's love for spending time at parks in the outdoors because that a great portion of my childhood was spent outdoors and at camps. So it's very interesting to think about that maybe his experience in the CPS um, maybe, you know, affected, has, you know, trickled down to my own life experiences. The second CPS unit he was in, was number 56-01. This was in Waldport, Oregon. And at this particular place, on the CPS website, they say that the men worked to reforest the Blodgett Peak Burn, forest land heavily logged during World War I, and later burned by devastating wildfires. The men felled hundreds of dead trees, replanted, 
logged out, and burned out areas while also caring for seedlings and nurseries. Firefighting required intense work away from camp for short periods of time until fires could be brought under control. Men also performed maintenance and operation of two-way radio sets, telephone equipment, and kept tools and equipment in repair. When fire hazards were low, they built roads and trails in the backcountry and felled hundreds of dead trees. They maintained and built forest lookout systems and also staffed these posts. The third camp my grandfather worked at was CPS unit number 021-01, and this was Cascade Locks, Oregon. Here, um, the CPS website says that the men performed physical labor demanded in forest service camps, fighting fires, preventative and preparatory measures, building roads and trails into the backcountry, felling dead trees, reforestation of burned out areas, camp maintenance, and construction. The only memory that we have of the time of when my grandfather was in the service is when my grandmother went to visit him in Oregon. It was during the war, and I believe from the description of these different camps, it might have been at this Waldport, Oregon CPS unit. Because my grandmother shared with my mother her memories of going to visit him when he was stationed in a fire tower. And this is one of these buildings on really long stilts, just perched high in the air like an eagle's nest, where they could look out and watch for forest fires. To reach the cabin at the top, you had to climb this long winding staircase And it was quite the workout to get to the top. And my grandmother remembered having to take groceries up all of those steps. And I can't even imagine having to do that on any regular basis. But my mother also remembers her sharing these chalk drawings that my grandmother had made of sunrises and sunsets that she saw while staying there with my grandfather. And since, you know, they were still in their, you know, honeymoon phase, they hadn't been married for very long. That must have been a pretty special time for them to stay there. And I mean, it wasn't very often that wives were able to visit their husbands at these CPS camps. There are records of that happening, and I'm sure the wives visited whenever they could. And it's just really cool to know that my grandmother did get that chance. And that's quite a long distance to travel to go from Michigan out to Oregon, despite what was going on in the world at the time. But that's it. That's the only memory that we have. And I really, I really wish I'd known enough about the civilian public service or even about conscientious objectors in general to ask them about their experience during the war, see if they'd even be willing to talk about it. But sadly, they're both gone now. And um, I'm just happy to be able to to talk about them in general, at least, and to bring to light conscientious objectors' experiences for the war. And it's been good to learn more about my grandparents in this way. And I hope that this has been an interesting um, experience for you to learn more about their work during the war. Well, that's it for this episode. Thank you so much for joining me. And 
If you'd like to check out my research resources or the recipes in the cookbook that I talked about today, you can go to my blog, victorykitchenpodcast.com. And if you'd like to, again, support me on Patreon, you can go to patreon.com slash victorykitchenpodcast, or you can go to anchor.fm slash victorykitchenpodcast. Thanks again for listening, and I'll talk to you next time. Bye. Bye.